0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and I'm here today with Lauren stiller Ricklin, editor of the new book, Her Honor, Stories of Challenge and Triumph from Women Judges. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you
1: for having me.
0: So we are absolutely going to get to these stories from these women jurists, but first I want to talk about the beginning of this project. And to do this, we need to talk about the Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Awards, (laughs) (laughs) the Margaret Brent Awards. And I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a connection here. I wrote the article talking about the 2017 Margaret Brent Awards, which was the year that you received your Margaret Brent Award.
1: Oh, (laughs) that's really nice. Thank you. So to start off,
0: for anyone who has not heard about the Margaret Brent Awards, which are some of my favorite things that happen around the ABA's annual meeting. Uh, Could you give us just a brief overlook at what are the Margaret Brent Awards?
1: The Margaret Brent Award is a major award that the Commission on Women gives out, and it's considered a pretty high honor within the ABA. And we, uh, I say we just because I had been on the commission <laughs> decades ago at this point. Um, but I remember well that the commission gets so many amazing nominations for women who have not just achieved excellence and great moments in their career, but who have also, and this to me is the most important part, helped pave the way for other women. So when you look at somebody who has gotten the Brent Award, you know, this is somebody who, yes, has achieved a great deal. Um, but I think most significantly, she has really tried to help other women succeed and used her power and influence uh, to help others.
0: And if you're asking yourself, who is Margaret Brent, uh, she was a 17th century American. She lived in the Maryland settlement. Uh, she emigrated from England, and she may have been the first, and I think was the first woman who at least has been documented as acting for herself and others in court. And that's that's how that got that name. But uh, some listeners may now say, okay, you've talked a lot about the Margaret Brent Awards. What's the connection to this book?
1: So it's an interesting question. I was approached by the judicial division of the ABA uh, actually during lockdown in August of 2020 and asked if I would edit a book about prominent women judges with the idea that their editorial board had was that they would go out and they would seek these stories from women judges and I would edit them and then we'd have a book and it would be all good. And it sounded so easy in the, pro- <laughs> the process of the discussion. <laughs> And the first question that came to my mind, of course, is in a, you know, in a nation full of and fortunate enough to have so many amazing women judges at this point, how on earth would we determine who is considered a quote unquote prominent woman judge to be asked to participate in this book? And in thinking about it, it occurred to me that a very easy line to draw would be, we'll go out and we'll ask all the women judges who have received the Brand Award to see if they would participate. And if, if all went well, then we wouldn't have to go beyond that and make other kinds of distinctions. This would be a very clean and easy way, uh, to, to base this ask to participate on. And we were very fortunate in that we, we got a, a large number of responses. And, and we also got a number of people who wrote on behalf of uh, Brent awardees who have since died. Interestingly, just about all of those who did so are also Brent awards. But anyway, so yeah, so we that's really the connection with the Brent. It, it, it became the marker for how we did the ask to participate in this book.
0: And just so my listeners uh, have an idea about this book's structure. You know, you said that you went out and you asked the judges who have been awarded the Margaret Brown Award um, to write about, you know, their journey, or in the case of judges who've already passed, asked other prominent women to write about them. But how did you then compile this into a book? What was the organizational structure?
1: Well, I mean, there were, Even just to back up a bit, because one of the things that I said to the editorial board when we began this project was that I was not interested in editing a book in which people talked about their lovely mentors, how lucky they were. Um, You know, I wanted the book to be inspiring for people today. And that would mean really going deep on what were the difficulties that they faced? uh, What challenges can they talk about in terms of how they confronted them and how it made them feel and how they overcame them? So that was a big part of it. So I actually came up with a list for the editorial board of um, a menu of things that the judges could choose from to talk about, whether, you know, for example, overcoming racism, sexism or other stereotyping, challenging the status quo, experiences with promotion or pay inequality. So it was a full list. And we then asked. I reached out to two very prominent women judges who are uh, also very strong ABA supporters and active in the ABA and, and known and beloved by by all who know them. Uh, Bernice Donald and Margaret McEwen, uh, uh, Judge Donald from the Sixth Circuit and Judge McEwen from the Ninth, and asked if they would sign a letter inviting the judges to participate. And then that letter would include this list about what we hoped that they would talk about. So that helped create the the kind of overarching structure for the book. At least, you know, we knew what we'd want to talk about. And initially, I had thought that structurally, The submissions would fall within those lines and maybe we'd have a chapter on pay inequality or a chapter on power relationships or emotional resilience. And then as I was getting these essays in, I realized they cover the waterfront and one, you know, that one, one submission could be addressing five of the eight or nine topics that they uh, were given. So I had to rethink the structure, but the core essential element was to to please get personal and and introspective about the um things you wrote about.
0: And I will say as someone who has read her honor, one of the things that that ends up letting you do, I think, is you know this is not necessarily a book you have to pick up and read front to back. You could, but it also is one that you can you know, pick up when you have 20 minutes and and spend time with each judge in her own journey. And I don't know about you, but obviously there were experiences that were reflected over many of these judges' lives that, you know, made sense. You're like, oh yes, you experienced pushback trying to go to law school or getting started in your practice. But everyone also had so many unique experiences that they they talked about. You know, are there any that stick out in your mind that as you were reading these submissions that really, you know, surprised you? Or maybe it was a woman you knew, but hadn't known this part of her story.
1: You know, it's funny. Since the book has been completed and people have been finding out about it, I do get asked about uh, similar questions about what was my favorite or, um, and, and as I think about it and think about questions like yours, which are interesting questions, I realize that my reaction is almost like what happens when a parent is asked, who is your favorite child? <laughs> um, I have so come to love and respect these women on on so many levels, um, several I knew well because I had worked with them. For example, in the ABA, like Bernice and Margaret, who um, who were simply amazing people, and both of them, their submissions did surprise me, in some of the stories that they told and that they shared. But there were others. I, I would just have to say everybody was so deep and in, in, in thoughtful and nuanced in how they approached what they wrote about. And the other thing I will add to that is they were wonderful about the editing process. And, you know, as you can imagine being asked to edit, uh, you know, <laughs> 25 essays, you know, by and about, women judges was a little daunting at times because you're going back and you're asking people to who are used to editing other people to talk more about something or to change or reshape things. And uh, they just could not have been kinder or more receptive. And I think, or at least I hope, that they enjoyed this process as well, That that they felt they got a lot out of it for them.
0: To start off the book, it feels appropriate that you selected the essay about Sandra Day O'Connor, and you got a phenomenal person to write about it, Marcy Hamilton, who's writing I've enjoyed since, I want to say, college or grad school, reading Find Law's blog Writ. But you know, you had to reach out and make these asks. Uh, what was that process like? And also, you know, if you'd like to talk about why you started out with Sandra Day O'Connor.
1: Sure. So the process, everything about the process was 20 million times harder than I ever thought it would be. I write a lot. This is, um, in essence, my fifth book. It's the first time I've edited a book, but it'll be my fifth book. And I love to write and I love to edit my own work. But everything about finding the judges, you know, because a lot of them were just even plain old difficult to locate and the process of getting them to do it and then the timing and how you know long it was taking and the editing everything was complicated it was particularly complicated to find you know for example for as with justice o'connor who would be the right person to ask and in those kinds of instances, every time I felt somewhat overwhelmed, there was this wonderful network of people who were there to help and There were several women who were just instrumental in finding for me whether you know the the, the two the clerks who wrote for justice o 'connor and, uh, and, and Justice Ginsburg. You know, people who helped me reach out to you know, D- D- Dahlia Lithwick for the Forward and um, others in, that have been involved. So um, it was a wonderful example of a, a network of women. Friends and acquaintances who were just willing to go that extra mile for someone that they really did, in many cases, didn't know all that well, and that was a case certainly with finding the right person to do the Justice O'Connor's essay. And it's, I want, I thought it was appropriate to bookend the book with the two Supreme Court justices and. Certainly with respect to Sandra Day O'Connor, the essay is so revealing of the pressures that were being put on Justice O'Connor as far back as the 80s to become a vote against choice against reproductive rights. And in light of what is happening in the world today, it was just so timely uh, to begin the book with, with that and, 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 and to show as the first essay what I think is common throughout the book, which is everything you're reading and in many cases about individuals that took place decades ago, worrisomely are, are happening today. And that's the, a thread that, that kind of weaves throughout the book. And in some ways, it's inspiring to see how people handled all of that. And in other cases, it's, of course, quite worrisome to see where we are today on so many of these issues that we thought we had put behind us.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our sponsors. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back to my conversation with Lauren Stiller-Brickleen. And that idea of... The passage of time really brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about when it comes to, I love to think about her honor becoming a method of conversation between generations. Now, necessarily, because, you know, the women would have needed to reach the position of judge and to have been chosen for a Margaret Brent Award, the women featured in these books are not from, say, the millennial generation or Gen Z. But I think that these are such important conversations for millennials, Gen Z women looking to go into the legal profession to read and think about. Was that something that occurred to you as you were writing and putting this book together?
1: I would actually say it was instrumental to me. Um, as you know, I do a lot of work in the generational space. I do a lot, you know. One of my books was on generational ta- issues, and a whole core of what I write about and think about in and and, and ta- presentations over is how do we strengthen intergenerational relationships? And I wanted a book in which younger generations could read essays from people who may be very much older than they are, and it would feel like they were talking to a friend. It would feel like they were hearing things that they could relate to as a problem and hearing solutions either that they could implement themselves or, and in many cases, this was purposeful, Say, I will never take it, I will never do that and and I loved that several of the justices um of the judges talked about experiences where they expressed that regret they they regretted their silence they regretted that they just continue to ignore these slights, whether it they the slights were racist or sexist or, you know, whatever ism you want to put after it, they often felt they had no choice and therefore just stuck it out and dealt and and didn't deal with it and continued to move on. I loved that so many of the judges said that just shouldn't be the way it has to be.
0: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, as a younger reader, my mother- uh, went to law school in the early '80s when I was a toddler, and I certainly did observe by proxy some of the same sort of issues that these women judges were talking about. And you know, when my mother was an assistant state's attorney, you know, I was very young, but I observed some things and thought, oh, that's that's different. But I think that on either end, there will be surprises for younger readers, both what women had to deal with and Also, on the other end, what we are still dealing with and how far back it goes. You know, you brought up abortion rights, and there was a time period in which it would have been considered a little nutty to talk about the overturning of Roe v. Wade or the rolling back of any of these rights. And here we are. So were there any judges in particular who, you know, when you read their chapters, you thought, oh, this especially speaks to... The battles that we are still fighting today?
1: I would probably not be able to say, oh, here's this one. But I would be able to say, in many cases, when the judges were talking about sexual harassment, or outright sexism, I saw shades of stories that i hear today if i'm in a workplace for example doing training or speaking or whatever or when i was writing the um the the aba book my more my past book the shield of silence looking at the intersection between power and silence, what happens when people stay silent and how that perpetuates negative conduct in the workplace. I saw all of that playing out in the stories that were being told here. And I hear it all the time in the work I do and the friends I have and uh, just uh, the volunteer work I do. It, It is still ubiquitous. And while some of the stories that are told Uh, For example, the uh, judges who had to, whose roots were in the Jim Crow South, that is a particular point in time. I mean, we don't have waterfronts that I'm sorry, water fountains that are labeled today. But on the other hand, we have persistent racism, and in some respects, uh, uh, you have to add to that this pernicious layer of trying to pretend that doesn't exist by preventing people from talking about it or learning about it. So I, I keep seeing, and again, I just have to say, I see it in almost, in almost all of the essays, this overlay between a time that was, and we thought we got past it, and here it is in another form that is very worrisome, Uh, And requires even, you know, as great and continued vigilance as ever before.
0: Now, we didn't start out by speaking about your particular work. And I would love for you to just share with listeners what it is you do and a little bit about the Ricklean Institute to give them an idea about your background.
1: Sure, I think. Oh, thank you for asking. So I have. I'm living two lives right now. Um, the Rick uh, The Rickling Institute is what I created. The Ricklean Institute for Strategic Leadership was what I created when I left the practice of law after two decades as a, a, a partner, uh, practicing environmental law, but very obsessed with and always thinking about workplace culture gender-related issues, unconscious bias, and all of the things that can make the workplace feel unsafe and uncomfortable and unproductive and unhealthy. And I took that, I, I those feelings always came out in books that I wrote or articles that I wrote. And I ultimately left the firm to be able to spend all, all of my time doing more writing and more speaking and training on how to create a respectful, diverse, and inclusive workplace culture. So that's a piece of what I do that is very near, you know, I'm I'm doing work that's really been at the core essence of things that I've cared about my entire life. Another thing that happened in August of 2020 when I was approached about this book was that I was asked to uh, serve on the board of an organization called Lawyers Defending American Democracy. Um, something I had written caught the eye of um, a former Massachusetts attorney general who had created this uh, co-created an organization to look at why are lawyers not speaking out more in a time of attacks on our democratic values, small d Democrat, and, uh, and attacks on the rule of law. And that's something else that I'm very passionate about. And I began serving in that role and doing much more writing on those issues for For the organization. And then uh, about a year ago, I was asked to uh, be their um, interim executive director. Uh, The interim part is now gone from the title. But the bottom line is, I am serving in this leadership role for Lawyers Defending American Democracy to do continued writing and uh, special projects around how we can protect democracy and the rule of law and further engage the legal profession and the work. So, um, so both of these, um, all of these things kind of have, you know, jo- joined together at this point. And yet, and they're all related in so many ways, because they all have to do with core fundamental values of who we are and who we want to be as, as a country, as people, as workplaces. Um, so it just all kind of fits together.
0: And speaking about it fitting together, have there been experiences you've had while editing this book or stories from the book that changed something about the way you do your other work or when you're going to firms? Are there any stories that you now uh, use when you're you know, in discussion? I just think that there are so many points of entry in so many of these women's stories that could be object lessons.
1: I think what the what they coalesce around is a notion of being able to stick with it. You know, I think about, for example, you know, the um, essay that was written on uh, Judge Patwald from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, a beautiful essay written by Marsha Greenberger and uh, Patwald's daughter, Sarah Wald, that talked about Pat Wall's amazing legal career and the fact that she had five kids and how on earth she was able to recognize how messy life is and how complicated life is and how unpredictable life is and accept those as threads that run throughout her life and still move forward. And I and I think that particular example resonates because she she had so many kids and people feel so overwhelmed by how we juggle all of life's responsibilities, but she was able to be true to her values of what she wanted to achieve in her life. She was able to carve out time, you know, she, she made it work as best she could, and she was just kept persevering. And and I think the notion that life is unpredictable and messy is something that is important to keep front and center, because I think it is very easy for all of us to say, well, I can do this as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as my kids are grown, as soon as they are in school, as soon as I'm done with X, Y, or Z. And I think, For some of these judges, there was a a timeout. We all know famously about um, Justice O'Connor having taken a a long pause from her own career. Many of these judges did themselves. But the bottom line was they all got back in and they all persevered. And I I think that theme that, again, runs through uh, a number of these uh, essays uh, is critical because you know it goes to the whole grit and building grit and building resilience the idea that yeah life can be complicated and difficult but if I'm pursuing what I'm passionate about then it's not going to be it won't be so painful it will be my life and it'll be a messy life and now there are times I'm going to feel good about things and bad about things but I can keep going one of the other submissions was by Linda Murnane, who spent much of her career in the military. And I remembered her work from and her writing from actually when I was on the ABA Commission on Women, one of the years when she got her Brandt Award. And reading her story about what she endured in the military, that was was cruel. I I, I view it as cruelty that she endured. It was the hazing in the worst way because um, of how she was treated. I don't think she would characterize it that way, but I've always gotten angry hearing about her stories. I've gotten angry for her, but she went through her experiences and came out continually doing what she wanted to do, persevering, moving forward. And even as your blood will boil reading her story, you come out with this great admiration for all that she endured, and yet here she is, not only not bitter, but continuing to do incredibly important work, putting her passion for making the world a better place, front and center always, and and knowing what just a lovely person she is you know again you you'd come away from these essays like that and and think people have gone through some really awful things and and yet here they are continuing to care continuing to care about making the world a better place and i think that's really where i continue to get inspired by all of these uh, all of these chapters.
0: We'll be right back after this brief message. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host Lee Rawls here with Lauren Stiller Ricklin. One thing that occurred to me as I was reading the stories of her honor was an older project that the Commission on Women in the Profession did on grit and resilience. So I love hearing you you know, bring up resilience. And one of their findings from this project was that to a certain extent, at least, grit, resilience, these are things that we can work on developing. And I think right now is a period that is very difficult for people uh, when it comes to getting through COVID-19, financial downturns, uncertainty in the world. And so I would love to hear a little bit more from you about qualities you see that you can develop as these women did when it comes to perseverance and grit.
1: Yeah, I thought about grit and resilience a a great deal uh, in in editing this book. And I am very familiar with the commission's work as well as the work of, of some of the professors uh, in academia who are really leaders in in that field and you know the notion of being able to persist the notion of being able to go through a dark time and just be continue forward with some fundamental belief deep down inside that it will work out is an incredible concept. And the research shows that it is true and that grittier people are more successful and people who are resilient, who have that ability to bounce back, are going to do better. But it comes from a core faith. I mean, one of the themes that also runs through this book, for the most part, is that every one of these judges went through such difficulty um, for the most part, and yet there was this core fundamental belief in themselves. And I think that for, mo- for a lot of them, it came from their family who themselves had been may have been going through very difficult times. He had instilled in them the idea that they still can succeed in spite of the the roadblocks, the prejudice, the outright mistreatment, You know, you asked me uh, about some of the stories that I remember, you know, one that still, you know, gives me knots in my stomach is in uh, Judge Donald's story where she talked about her role in integrating a school and how cruelly she was treated, but she had her eye on the ball. And yet she was doing well and succeeding and apparently had been given scholarships to schools that the school never even told her about. And I mean, when you think about the level of of cruelness that can be perpetrated on people who are just trying to succeed and do their best, the idea that you could be working hard, doing well, and not even being told about an opportunity to go to college on a scholarship is mind-boggling. And so it takes an enormous amount of grit to be able to 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 move forward from those kinds of situations and just keep plugging away. And so I, I think that for me, what's probably had the biggest impact on my own life in these stories is when I'm having a bad day or I'm upset by something or angry at, you know, something that was done, I just start thinking about these stories and think, you know, on my, on a personal level Just, you know, be grateful for what you have and, and move forward. And then on the kind of macro big picture level, I feel inspired by what they've done to try to make a difference and feel like, well, if somehow, you know, in my work through Lawyers Defending American Democracy or in other ways, if I can just help move that needle a little bit on Protecting democracy and the rule of law. If I can help inspire others to do the same, then you know I'll have given back a little bit. About uh, uh, compared to what what all of these judges have given back as well.
0: It's probably unsurprising, given that this is a a book that is very intrinsically involved with uh, ABA members and sections, and is published by the Judicial Division. That we've been talking a lot about the ABA during our conversation. And I have to say the other thing that came up for me while reading the book was our current ABA president, Deborah Enix-Ross, has a theme for her year as president of the three C's. And she, she talks about them often. And her three C's are civics, civility, and collaboration. And I thought about that many times during this book, particularly when these women were being asked to work productively with People who, you know, often fellow judges who had fundamental beliefs that were so different from theirs. And, you know, my own personal style sometimes is a little too much on the side of, well, I don't agree with you and I'm not going to interact with you. That wasn't an option for many of these women uh, in their careers. You know, if you're on the Supreme Court and you think originalism is, you know, absolutely not what we should be following, you're still going to have to deal with with other judges in a respectful manner who do feel that, even judges who are, you know, whose beliefs would fundamentally alter your own rights. And so when you think about this, you know, the three Cs, civic, civility, and collaboration, and how it played into a lot of the professional lives of these women, you know, what comes to mind for you?
1: Well, I have really admired what Deborah has been trying to do as president because these are crucial values if we are to move forward in a time when people are unable to talk to each other when they disagree. And I think that the more we can remind ourselves in each other that being collaborative, being civil to one another is. Uh, are critical values and important for how we protect democracy at a, the most fundamental level. Then the more we are able to, to to try to move the needle somewhat in making progress around all these issues that divide us. That said, we're living in a really really difficult time. It's almost as though there we're we're dealing in a world where. Anger is rewarded. We, we see this all the time in the media where the anger machine is fueled, where anger is what changes social media algorithms. And we're, we're really at a time where anger is just rewarded in so many other ways that we have to be thinking about how do we interrupt that cycle? How do we make anger something that people are embarrassed about and not rewarded for. And that's something that I think about a great deal when I think about issues around civil discourse and civility, which is we have to meet the anger with the calm. We have to meet lack of reason with reason. But we have to get more people who think this way, and I think more people do think this way, to be willing to speak out and step up and play a leadership role in in pushing the need for civility uh, um, and, and and you know civic con- you know civic engagement and and conversations where people actually are listening to each other. So we have to get. More people who are like Deborah in the mix and involved than those who are fueling and and stoking fear and anger and hatred.
0: Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on this episode to discuss Her Honor, Stories of Challenge and Triumph from Women Judges. If any of my listeners want to pick up this book, where can they do so?
1: Well, they can certainly do it through the ABA uh, Shop ABA, um, and they can also do it from Amazon. and I think it's actually available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, uh, the normal kinds of online bookstores, um, and of course through the ABA. And I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me about this. It's really a pleasure to talk about this book and and the chapters, uh, the authors of these chapters.
0: And if anyone wanted to hear more about your work, uh, is there anywhere they could do that?
1: Sure. They could look at recleaninstitute.com to look at the the training and speaking I do. And Lawyers Defending American Democracy can be, their website is ldad.org.
0: Again, thank you to Lauren and thank you to you, my listeners, for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you have any book that you'd like us to consider for a future episode, you can always reach us at books at ABA journal. Com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.